I wanted to speak this morning on a subject that causes me to swerve into a passage, a primary passage in the book of 2 Corinthians, and that's where our pastor's college students are preaching from. So I called Stephen Baker, and he said it was okay. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in just a moment. But I wanted to talk to you first about a little history from the Old Testament to try to prepare us for what uh, the subject is of the sermon this morning. If you remember, after the years of Solomon, because of Solomon's sin, God caused there to be a division between the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Do you all remember that? And that Solomon's son Rehoboam inherited only a small portion of the kingdom, the southern kingdom, and that Jeroboam, a man that God had intended for this purpose, then led the northern kingdom and began as the first king of the separated kingdoms. And that after Rehoboam died, he was succeeded by Abijah. And the, New Test- or the Old Testament says in Second Chronicles that Abijah was a godly man, that he led Israel in a godly way, and that it, at one point he came up into battle against the northern kingdom and against Jeroboam, and that Abijah made a, he makes a, he, he kind of preaches a sermon to the enemy, to the Israelites from the northern kingdom. They're his brothers, but they're also, they're also estranged from God. They're worshiping idols that had been set up by Jeroboam. And Abijah stands and he preaches to them and he tells them about their wickedness and he tells them that they're wrong and he tells them that they're wrong specifically for worshiping idols and being separated. And he he talks to them about the fact that they'll let anybody be a priest to them who has enough money, wants to buy his position to be a priest there. And so he's pushing before the battle and he says, we trust in God and the battle is engaged and it's such a rout, the northern kingdom is defeated to such an extent that the, that the scriptures say that uh, Rehoboam, I'm sorry, Jeroboam, in his time as the king, never recovered enough to make any kind of a foray or a military foray against, against uh, uh, the southern kingdom again. He was just completely defeated. And that was... Abijah's rule of the southern kingdom. It's marked by him being godly. That's how his reign ends. And he's succeeded by his son Asa. And Asa starts off the same way. Starts off with a battle where he fights a battle, and it's a two-to-one battle. They're fighting the Ethiopians that come up against them. There's two of the enemy to every one. They call on the name of the Lord, and what happens? God completely routes the enemy. They're defeated And God, by his miraculous power, against really bad odds, causes the southern kingdom to be victorious. And so a prophet comes to Asa and he says, you know, if you'll seek the Lord, people will seek the Lord, everything's going to be good. And Asa says, yes, people, let's do this. And so we're going to seek the Lord and everything's going to be good. And they they commit themselves, they make a vow, they're going to seek the Lord, everything's going to be good. The kingdom goes on, Asa goes on, and the time comes when the northern kingdom's kind of regrouped again. They have some strength, and the king of the northern kingdom says, I'm going to attack the southern kingdom. And Asa hears about it, and what does he do? Well, 
he does something that isn't the same that he did when the Ethiopians attacked. He makes a deal with, uh, uh, oh, I can't think, the guy from Damascus. I can't think of the guy's name. Ben-Hadad, a non-Israelite. He makes, he makes an alliance with a non-covenantal kingdom. He sends him money. He says, you fight against the northern kingdom for me, would you? Here's some money. Please do it. The guy says, sure, I'll fight against him. He fights against him. The northern kingdom, again, is subdued. They fall back, and Asa is safe. Well, what happens then? Well, then God sends a prophet to Asa, and he says, why did you make this alliance? You trusted God two to one odds against you with the Ethiopians who came up against you and and the northern kingdom comes toward you and the odds aren't anything like that and you make an alliance with Damascus, with Ben-Hadad, with a, with a non-godly, non-covenant people country. You go outside and make this alliance. Why did you do this? You've done an awful wicked thing and what's going to happen to you is you're going to have wars the rest of your time now because of what you've done. And so what happens? Asa gets mad. Do you know what he does with the prophet? Throws him in prison. And then the Bible says, that incidentally, at that point, he also mistreats some of the people. I think maybe some of the people were saying to him, I can't believe you're throwing the prophet in prison. And Asa mistreats them. I'm not sure that's what happened. And the end of his reign is not so good. It says he was diseased in his feet and that... Finally, the disease took his life and he died. And he was succeeded by his son, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat came and did at the beginning, just like Asa had done, just like his grandfather Abijah had done. He seemed to be leading the people in holiness. But it came a certain time and Jehoshaphat thought, well, you know what? I kind of like to get together with the northern kingdom, have some kind of an alliance. So it says that he allied himself by marriage to Ahab. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll realize and read that Ahab was a wicked king in the northern kingdom. And Jehoshaphat allied himself with Ahab. And so it came a certain time, and Ahab had to do a battle with some other country, and Ahab called Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat brought the Israelites. And if you remember the story, they called for prophets to come, and there's the whole story of the prophets telling them, you're going to win, and one of the prophets makes some horns out of, out of uh, steel, and he says, you're going to gore the enemy with the horns. And, and then Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord? And so they bring this one other prophet who's a prophet of the Lord, and, and Ahab doesn't like him because he always says negative things about Ahab, and the prophet of the Lord comes, and he says, sure enough, Ahab, you're going to die. You're going to die. And, and everybody's going to run away and go home, and, and it's going to be scattered. And what happens then? Jehoshaphat says, well, I'm not going to have any part of this. I'm going home. That's not what he did, is it? He went on into the battle. I don't know why. What was he thinking? He asked for the prophet of the Lord. The prophet of the Lord came. The prophet of the Lord told him the truth. And he just goes on and does the battle anyway. Almost loses his life. God protects him. He gets back home. The Lord sends to him the son of the prophet that his father had thrown into prison. And the son of the prophet says to him, I can't believe you. God says, I can't believe you identified yourself with Ahab. What were you thinking? 
a man who is wickedly opposed to God. I can't believe that you made an agreement with him, that he made a contract with him. Do you want his sin to come on you? You've done some things right, but this was not one of them. And you go on through his life, and Jehoshaphat does more things that are right, but at the end of his life, it's characterized by an alliance that he makes, another alliance with the northern kingdom, with Israel in the north, another alliance with one of the kings of Israel where he decides he's going to do some commerce with them. And so they have, this, uh, they have some ships built together, Jehoshaphat and the king from the northern kingdom. They have some ships built together, and the prophet comes to Jehoshaphat and he says, you've done it again. You've made an ungodly alliance, and I want to tell you that you're not going to profit at all by this, and it's all going to be destroyed. And the Bible says very simply, and the ships were broken, something like that. The ships were broken, and they never made any money. And that was pretty much the end of Jehoshaphat's reign. Well, what was different about Asa and Jehoshaphat than than separated from the reign of their father was that both of them, the Bible records, made ungodly alliances. Asa made an ungodly alliance with a king who wasn't a part of the covenant people of God. He made common cause with a kingdom outside of God's covenant people. Jehoshaphat made common cause with somebody who was a part of the covenant people of God, but a people who were in rebellion to God in idolatry. And it was an ungodly alliance as well. And both of them were sent prophets, and both of them were rebuked for doing it, and both of them got into big trouble because of these alliances that they made. We do this in our lives. We make alliances all the time. We don't realize we're making them sometimes. Sometimes we know we're making them. Sometimes we don't know the implications of them. We make them in all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of ways you can make an alliance with somebody. It can happen as simply as a way you nod your head toward them. Seriously. We all saw a big attempt at at some alliance to be made this past week in the big beer summit. Did you all see the beer summit? Right? At the picnic table on the playground at the White House. And so you have four men sitting down with very different backgrounds. And I don't think any of them have probably changed their positions on primary things in their lives. But the fact of the matter is they are now identified with one another. Because they sat down at the picnic table and they they drank beer together. And so they've made themselves into this uh, historical alliance. As silly as it seems. Right? They are that way. Well, we make these things all the time. We don't realize we're doing it sometimes. We don't see how we're doing it. But we make these kinds of agreements. And they're made simply. Easily. And some things don't change in our lives, but some things do because we are now identified in some way with the person or the group that we made the alliance with. Right? We make all kinds of alliances. The New Testament goes on and talks to the church of Jesus Christ about these kinds of alliances. We're going to look at two types of alliances. One is the type that we make with unbelievers, and the other is the type we make with so-called believers, is what the New Testament says. So we're going to look at those now. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, or if it's on the screen, you can follow along there. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says in verse 11, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership or sharing have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? 
What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So he's saying we need to be separate. What does that mean? Are we supposed to join some kind of separatist organization? In the first service, someone said, I said, what's an example of an organization that would be a separatist? And somebody said, the Branch Davidian. And I thought, oh, you got another example? Um, So what's an example? The Shakers, they didn't last very long. Um, I guess the Amish are kind of separatists, aren't they? They're fairly separatists. We can see that kind of idea. Is that what God is calling us to? Is he calling us to be separate physically from the world? Separate physically, to separate ourselves physically. So we don't have conversations. We don't have commerce. We don't do anything with anyone who's an unbeliever. Is that what this is saying? Well, we know we'll we'll see soon from another scripture that that's not what it's saying. But there is something specific that it is saying to us. There is an aspect to our relationships with the people of the world that cause us to resonate with the people of the world in such a way that we are not separate from them. And we are supposed to resonate. In fact, the word in these verses where it talks about where it talks about what harmony has Christ with Belial. The word there is a Greek word that we get our word symphony from. You all know what a symphony is, right? I ask in the first service, how many keys does a symphony play in at one time? How many keys does the symphony play in at one time? And Mick knew the answer. How many keys does the symphony play in at one time? Now I'm not talking about this modern stuff. How many keys? One. One key at a time. One key at a time. If I had six vocalists who could stand up fast, we could demonstrate this. But I don't even see six vocalists. Let's see some hands. Are there any vocalists here? Two. Can each the two of you sing four parts? I'm just going to do it on the piano then. The world has a key. And the key of the world is harmonious with itself, right? It resonates with itself. So here is, here is C. Whoops. Maybe I should have turned my collar up. So here, you see? Not too painful, right? There's a harmony there. The resonance is good, right? You hear it? The church has a different key. The church has a different key. Okay? Harmony, right? Good. Sounds good, right? What happens when we play them together? 
Is that good? It sounds like the really young symphonies. What fellowship does this have with this? None. None. And so we're told that we are not supposed to resonate with the world in what we do. We don't have fellowship with the world in what we do. We're not supposed to resonate with them in how they are and how they behave. And so we have to be very, very careful in our interaction with the world. Because some points of identity with the world will automatically cause us to resonate with them. I was reading Matthew Henry about this, and he says, you know, we have to be friends and have relations with the world, relationships with the world. But the fact of the matter is, we better not take for us people of the world to be our bosom friends. Right? Because when we do that, we are going to start to resonate like the world. We're going to start to sound like them. We are going to be affected by them. He said it's more likely that if we take them to ourselves in that fashion, without causing offense to them, it's more likely that they will affect us to the negative than that we will affect them to the positive. Because it's not primarily the proclamation of God's word that's happening. It's the the work of the close friendships that we would have in the world and with people. What harmony has Christ with Belial, with the devil, with the world? Another passage you could look at, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 10, where he talks about men in the church taking their court cases to secular courts. And he's saying, why are you doing this? Don't you have people that can judge? You're doing this in the secular courts in front of the world. It's like going and mixing the two keys. What in the world are you doing? Ought you not rather to be wronged than to do this in front of the world this way? So there are unholy alliances that we can make with unbelievers, with the unbelieving people of this world. And then there are unholy alliances that we can make with so-called believers. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. So we're supposed to be in the world. We have relationships and we have brushing of shoulders with ungodly people of this world. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Or what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So he lists all these things, these sins, particular sins that someone who is a so-called brother might commit. And so what do you think about it? How many of you know a swindler who is a so-called brother who professes Christ? I know a couple. Okay. How many of you know a drunkard who's a so-called brother who's a professor of Christ? Well, we know some, maybe, yeah. How many of you know a idolater? Yeah. How many of you know a covetous person? How many of you know an immoral person? How many of you know a reviler? What's a reviler? 
That's somebody who just who just thumbs their nose at authority. And so if we look at that list, we're probably going to say, well, it's kind of heavy on the immoral reviling side. Those are the big sins of our day, and they're the big sins that are in the church as well. We hate authority. We participate in sexual immorality. And we call ourselves Christians. We say to one another, I'm your brother. And he says, don't associate with this one. Don't associate with this one. Second John 1, 7 to 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out, watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And so you see it again. Making an alliance. We make an alliance with a so-called brother. We make an alliance with some preacher who comes to us and says, I'm telling you. But, of course, he's not really telling us the truth. And so what do we do? He says, don't even give him a greeting. What does that mean? I think I talked about this a while back. It doesn't mean you don't know that they're there. You're going to see them across the room, walking by them on the sidewalk or whatever. But what is a greeting? What happens when you come into the church? Many people came to me this morning. They gave me a greeting. What did they do? They put their hand out. They shook my hand. They hugged me. They smiled at me. They looked at me. That is the greeting that it's talking about. It's the greeting of acceptance. And that's what I'm telling you about making alliances is such a subtle thing. Because we make alliances in ways we don't even realize just by looking at somebody and smiling. And we made an alliance. We've said, I identify you as somebody that I'm free to smile at. But this is not what it says here. What it says here is don't even identify them as someone that you're free to smile at. Because they're wicked. They're a so-called brother. They're a false teacher in the church of Jesus Christ. And if you receive them, if you give them the greeting, it's sobering to think about. Even if we give them the greeting, we find ourselves, it says, sharing in their sin. Because we in some way identify with them. Matthew Henry says uh, about this, he says, um, Favor and affection partake of the sin. We may be sharers in the iniquities of others. How judicious and how cautious should the Christian be? There are many ways of sharing the guilt of other people's transgressions. It may be done by culpable silence, not saying anything, indolence, unconcernedness, private contribution, public countenance and assistance, inward approbation, open apology and defense. The Lord pardon our guilt of other persons' sins. We have to be careful. We have to be very, very careful about the alliances that we make with people who are calling themselves Christian brothers. Our, their sin could come upon us and be upon us. Why do we make ungodly alliances? Why do we do this? What's motivating us to do it? 
Well, many times we make these alliances because we fear men. We fear men. Um, We're at the university. We're in a class. Something in complete rebellion against God is declared to us by the professor or is taught in the class. And there's a, a tittering of laughter that goes by and And we are careful not even to show displeasure on our face, lest someone might see us and say, Oh, you're dissonant. You're not playing the right key. So we fear people. We fear men. We fear them looking at us and saying, Wait a minute, and then throwing us out ostracizing us, casting us away because of our identity to Christ. And so we fear men more than we fear God. God has made promises to us as those who fear Him. He's made promises to us that He would give Himself to us, that He would reveal Himself to us, that He would be found by us, that that we would belong to Him. But we're fearful. Sometimes we make these ungodly alliances because we're tired. We're tired of fighting. We're tired of the battle. We're tired of being the one that's on the out all the time. We're tired of everybody looking at us. We're tired of having the same old slanderous things said against us. We're just tired. We're just tired. We're tempted to be weary in well-doing. And so we get tired and we say, okay, I'll make an alliance. I'll concede this point. I'll do this. I'll make this kind of alliance with people. And it's dangerous. It's destructive. I've noticed that, pay attention, young people, now is the time to set your feet in the ground and say, I will not make false alliances, ungodly alliances. But old people, you who, like me, have gray hairs, it's a real, real temptation to us because our bodies are tired. We're just weary of walking, let alone weary of well-doing. And we get older and we want to say, well, you know, we kind of want to turn to the, to the young guy who's saying, Christ's word is a sword and it's sharp and it pierces. And we want to say, well, no, 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 wait a minute. You know, that whole sharp and piercing thing, it's just tiring to wield that thing all the time because of how it affects people and how people respond to it. So we say, you know, I've learned now that I'm older how to kind of round off the edge of the sword a little bit to make, to make it a little easier for people. You'll know when you get to be my age. You'll figure it out. You'll get wiser. We make deals. We make alliances because we're tired. We have battle fatigue. There are times in our lives when we make alliances and we're tempted to because of particular susceptibilities There are points in our lives where uh, we are particularly vulnerable to being influenced and making alliances with people outside of the church who are ungodly or who are so-called believers who are ungodly and rebellious against Christ because we're in a vulnerable vulnerable state. It's particularly true uh, in times when we're ill, when we suffer with long illness. It's particularly true when we... Uh, see a death in the family. It's particularly true when we're having a wedding. 
And what we do in these times is we say, okay, we're going to receive everybody because it's a time of celebration. It's the wedding. It's a time of celebration. So we're not going to, like, uh, say no to anyone or say no to any alliance at this time. Because this is a time when you don't do battle. This is a time when you, it's happy clappy time. We don't have to be Christians when we're getting married at our wedding ceremony. That's just going too far. And it's the same with funerals. It's a dangerous time because at that time, everybody gathers around you and you're mourning. But you have to be faithful at that time not to make alliances that are ungodly alliances. The temptation is there because everybody's coming in and everybody's bringing food and everybody's, you know, coming around you. And the temptation is there. But we're susceptible at that time, perhaps more than any other time in our lives. And yet, it's not a time for that. It's a time to trust God still. When we're sick, when we're having a death or mourning in the family, when we're having a wedding, it's a time we still are faithful to God. Perhaps especially at those times, we have to be faithful. Because it's in those times that the the message of the gospel just... It booms out. You know, you you close the lid on this piano, it makes one sound, but you raise the lid up like it's raised now, and the sound just booms out. And there are times in our lives when the sound just booms out. And people who hear our testimony in those times, they hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as it ought to be said and as it ought to be proclaimed. They hear it because it hits them hard. How can someone submit the joy of their wedding to a God How can someone submit the sorrow of their loss to their God? And it just booms out into the community. There are times when we make ungodly allowances because we are guilty of baser sins. There are times when our lust and our greed and our our, uh, hunger for fame and notoriety cause us to make alliances with people, make alliances Uh, uh, with ungodly people to satisfy our lust sexually, make alliances with ungodly people so that we can make money, like Jehoshaphat in building the ships, making alliances with ungodly people so that we can have renown, that we can be identified with this really, really, really important person. If I can stand next to them on the platform, wow. Let me tell you. Isn't that something? If I could just get that position and stand next to them. That's amazing. You know why? You don't have to say anything about them. You don't have to have any exchange with them. You don't have any connection with them. This is how subtle alliances are. If you're just standing on the elevated platform with them, or if they stand on the elevated platform at 10 o'clock and you stand on the elevated platform at 12 o'clock, you have made an alliance. You see? You're seen together in this place, in this place of, of uh, honor. You're among the honored in that place. But we want to do it because down inside of us we have these base kinds of sins, these primary kinds of sins, you know, um, one old guy I heard, he called it girls' gold and glory. Girls' gold and glory. 
those three base primary sins of sexual sins, financial greed sins, and sins of wanting honor and acclaim with men. Another thing that causes us to make ungodly alliances is just that we have pride in our ability. We look at ourselves and we say, well, you know, I'm big. My machine that I've put together, my ministry, the ministries here are big. We have big ministries, powerful ministries. And that ministry over there, they're asking for our help. And, you know, or that that government group over there, they're asking for our help. We could go and help them because we're powerful. I've got a name. I can lend my name to them. And, wow, that's going to take care of business. And we make unholy alliances, ungodly alliances. And, again, we fail. And what happens as a result? Well, we remove from us God's blessing. We, if, if God is merciful, he sends us a prophet and tells us, you've sinned wickedly. That's his mercy to us. We remove his blessing from us. We perhaps are ruined in this life. We bring upon ourselves the guilt of those we make alliances with by association. We perhaps will incur temporal judgment. Something will come into our lives that God allows to judge us for the things that we've done. God still does that, you know. God still does that. That's not just an Old Testament thing. And certainly we will suffer for the alliances that we make. We will certainly suffer. So, this morning, where are you? Are you in... Are you resonating with the world? Do you hear the key? And is that you? Teenagers, I see a bunch of you. Is that you? When you're out with your friends at school or out with your friends, no matter what school you are, if you're homeschooled, if you're in the public school, is this you? Is this when people are around you and you're around unbelievers? Is is this the tune they hear? Nice harmony. Are you are you just in complete harmony with them? Are you in harmony with them with the music you're listening to? Are you in harmony with them with the books you're reading, with the movies that you watch, with the conversations that you have, with the activities that you participate in, with the clothing that you wear, with your attitudes toward your parents? And toward those in authority, do you carry their, do you resonate with their harmony? Or can, if we watched you, could we hear the dissonance? Could we hear that? Does, do the people in the public arena around you, do they see that dissonance in your life? Would they, would they look at you and would they tell me if I were talking to them, yeah, that person's different than us. He's different than us. She's different than us. 
Even at home, you know, you can resonate with the world when you're all by yourself. On your computer with your, what do you call them? iPods. With the television. College students, are you resonating with the world? Or is there dissonance? Do they identify you in your conversation and how you behave in the university? Are you a drunkard? Are you immoral? Are you a reviler in the university? Are you sounding just like them? Or are you sounding a dissonant note because you are in harmony with God's people, with Jesus Christ and holiness? Businessmen, when you're out on the road and making deals, are you lying? Are you cheating? Are you immoral? Are you resonating with the world? Are you talking like them, looking like them, acting like them, fitting right in as smooth as smooth can be because... You have to because you want to make money, because you want to advance? Or do they see that you're playing a different key? Fathers and mothers and pastors and elders and deacons. And Titus, two women. Are we like the world or are we, are we harmonious with God's people sanctified through the ages? God's made promises to us. It's not just that, you know, we're going to be different because... Dave Carell likes to be different. He just likes to be contrary. He likes to be dissonant. That's Dave Carell for you. Sure enough. If you're going to play in C, he's going to play in G. Is that what it is? No. We have promises. Promises from God that are given at the end of that section of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them. I will dwell in them. I'll walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will welcome you, he says. I will be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. That's the promise. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's get rid of the bad notes. The notes that sound good in the world, let's get rid of those. That's what he's saying. Cleanse ourselves from those because these promises are held out to us. 
that God will be a father to us and we will be sons and daughters to him.